want to come at the love of God in a, in a way that I think will really give you perspective on it. Uh, last week I was talking to you about God's justice. Uh, one of the things that's super important for me that you get is that God never acts or tolerates injustice. That God in everything He does is just. And yet at the same time, He has established this whole other category in which He deals with us, a category in a sense you could call non-justice, in which He is forbearing towards us, He shows us mercy, He shows us grace. And it's, it's really powerful when you realize that both His justice and His mercy, His hatred of injustice and His love for grace, they all come from the same origin in his character. It comes from his goodness and the purity of his goodness. And when you talk about his love, you have to talk about it also originating from that place of his goodness. That when you say God is good, you're talking about his love. And it's interesting because the scripture never says God has love only or that God gives love only. It actually says God is love. So as we look at this passage together, some of it may not make sense as we read it. I'm giving us two passages from the prophet Hosea. As I unpack it later, it will make sense to you. In a sense, you have to understand the whole book to understand any of the book. But we're going to read two key passages together. They're pretty long. So if you get tired, just take a little rest in Jesus. But I like it when the church reads God's word out loud. So join me. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. When Israel was young, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. 
And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When He roars, His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So in order to understand the love of God as an attribute of God, you have to you have to understand it as he reveals it, not as we imagine it. And C.S. Lewis is an excellent writer about the revelation of God in theology, and he writes this about the love of God. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so lightly invoke, the Lord of terrible aspect is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guest, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds, persistent as an artist's love for his work, and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable, as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their Creator's eyes. I want you to, I want you to grasp something from Lewis's teaching here. You were formed, he says, you were formed in the furnace of the fire of the love of God. You were created, you were made in the furnace of the fire of His love. And that is why no other fire can warm you. That is why no other love can satisfy you. You were made for His love. That The furnace that created you, that formed you, was a fire of His love for you and no other love will satisfy and we see this, if we're, if we're honest, we see this in our relationships with other people. We demand from others an unconditional love which we ourselves cannot give. Many times I have realized that I'm angry or offended with my wife because she won't give me this kind of unconditional love and acceptance and worth and value. And I can't even give it to her, but I demand it from her. When I look at at, at families, there is such dysfunction in the family. And one of the reasons is we long for and demand unconditional love from our families and nobody can give it to us. Psychologists today are saying that 95% of all families in America are dysfunctional. I think it's probably low number. I'd say it's 100. It's just the one saying it think theirs is normal, so they're measuring by their own 
standards or whatever it might be. And I see it. I see it. And it's almost frightening with our own children, the need that they have, the little sponges that they are. I call, uh, I call this little two-year-old twi- every day, sometimes twice a day, and uh, FaceTime with her. She is the foster child of my, my daughter, and it looks like we're going to be able to adopt her this summer. So, and she calls me Pop-Pop, which I like. <laughs> and when she, I first started calling her, she's been with my daughter for a year, when I first started calling her, she was so fascinated by the iPad that she was willing to tolerate me. <laughs> and I know she was so fascinated by the iPad because the rule was she had to say bye-bye before she could touch the red button, which disconnects FaceTime. And she'd go bye-bye and touch it because <laughs> she wanted to be able to touch the button. Now she's no longer that interested in the iPad and not so interested in me. She says hello and then she runs and plays with something. And uh, so I just use it as a chance to catch up with my daughter, see how church is going, how her work's going, how she's doing, all like that. So I start talking to my daughter. The next thing I know, she comes back into the picture and screeches. Because at two years old, she knows we're not talking about her, and we're supposed to be. (laughs) She, though she's off playing with toys, demands that we still put all our attention on her. And now we're not. We're talking about each other. And so there's a demand, there's an emptiness, there's a, a, a void that can only be warmed by the fire of God's love. No other love will suffice. It, this is the thing. You can't give unconditional love, but you demand it. And so God Himself is the only one who can fill the demand that you have for this kind of love. And so the way that God presents His unconditional love for us is through a prophet. And the prophet's name is Hosea. And Hosea is called like all the other prophets of the Bible. It says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And I love the phrase there because in Hebrew it says, the burden of the Lord came to Isaiah. It's not just words to speak. It's not just a message to be communicated. But rather, it's a burden that God had for His people that now he wants to share his burden. And see, God is so, we've been looking at it, he's so majestic, he's so holy, he's so powerful, that if he were just to drop his burden on us, we'd be consumed. So what he does is he gives his burden in an accommodating way to a prophet, and the prophet translates it for us and communicates it to us. And God in this book that's written by Hosea is burdened for his people for he says his people are whores that they have gone after other gods that they have committed the vilest manner of adultery and so not only does he call Hosea to be a prophet but he calls him to live a life that is basically a parable God says go and marry a whore. And he says, because my people are that. And so, Isaiah goes and, and he marries this woman. Now, those of us that are older, the name Gomer, we always think of Gomer Pyle. But you see, Gomer's mother was an idiot. 
because Gomer is a girl's name, not a boy's name. So there is this woman, and she has had many lovers. She sells her body for money. She, she has broken many men, many hearts. She's lived with all kinds of men. And he goes and he finds her and he gives his life and his love to her. Here's what, here's what God told Hosea. I want you to go and commit yourself to somebody who will reject you. I want you to go and invest all your time and your energy and your money in somebody who will forsake you. And he says, that is the only way that I can show clearly how my love is for my people and how my people are with me. And so Gomer, immediately after she is married to Hosea, begins to cheat on him. She's unfaithful. She has many, many lovers. One way that we know it is she bears three children. And the third child is named Loami, which means not mine. Right? Can you imagine that? Your name for the rest of your life? <laughs> not mine, come to dinner. Every time your name is called, it is a reminder of your mother's unfaithfulness. That the father who's taking care of you is not your father. And your name is a curse. And so, eventually what happens in chapter 2, Gomer stops living with Hosea and she leaves the family. She leaves the children with Hosea and she goes and she lives a whore's life. Eventually, she ends up at this guy's house, and I, it, it's not clear, but it's possible he's basically her pimp. And Hosea hears about this, and he hears that she's not being fed. He hears that she doesn't have warm clothes. He hears that this man is abusing her physically and abusing her in every way, neglecting her. And so Hosea goes to the house where Gomer is living with this man, he knocks on the door and the man comes to the door. And Hosea says, I'm Gomer's wife. I'm Gomer's husband. And the man, you can imagine, the man's like, is there going to be a fight right now? What's going to happen? But Hosea completely blows this man away. He gives him all his money. He says, here's money. Make sure that Gomer is taken care of. And then he brings these bushels of barley, brings the grain, and he says, make sure she has something to eat. And so the guy closes the door, takes the provision, pretends that the provision came from him. You can hear him laughing. He said, what an old fool. What an idiot. What a stupid guy. I'll take this and she'll think I'm giving it to her. And I will make sure, you know, I'll make sure that I get the credit. No one will know that Hosea provided for Gomer. Well, by chapter 3, the chapter that we read, it has gotten so bad for Gomer. It's gotten so bad for Gomer that she's now on the slave block. She's being sold. And it's there that you read that passage that we read. God says, go and buy her. Go and buy her back. And it's so fascinating because the price for a slave was 30 shekels of silver. Ever heard 30 shekels of silver before? Anywhere else? Interesting, right? So what he does is he takes all the money he has. He has 15 shekels of silver, but he has these nine bushels of barley. And together, these all add up to the worth of 30 shekels. And he pays full price 
for his wife. And you have to picture this because she is now so degraded that she's being sold like a piece of property, like a cow. She's up on the platform being paraded for everyone to see. She's completely naked because you can't, you can't sell someone without the masters being able to see what they're getting. She has no dignity whatsoever. She has, she's, been, she's been degraded down to a piece of property. And God says, Hosea, go buy her back. He takes everything he has and he buys her back. He pays the 30 shekels of silver value for her. Can you imagine when the bidding was going on and the voice that she heard was not a stranger's voice, but was the voice of her own husband? Then this passage that we read, it says, he brings her off the slave platform. The first thing that he does is he takes his coat and he covers her and he restores her dignity as a woman. He takes her to a private place. And you can imagine what's going through her mind. She's got to be thinking, what's he going to do to me? He's bought me. Now I belong to him. I'm his property. He can do anything he wants to me. But before she's even able to say a word, Hosea says to her, you're not my slave. You're not my property. I want you to come home. But I want you to come home as my wife. I want you to come home... And I want you to share my life with me. And I want to share my life with you. I want you to no longer be a city without walls. I want you to no longer be a woman without boundaries. I want you to be a woman who belongs. I want you to be a woman who says, I will not share myself with another. I will not share myself with another. I want you to not share yourself with another. And he beautifully speaks to her of a life together. And then the Bible does something incredibly unexpected. It does not tell us how the story ends. It stops it right there. We don't know. We don't know if Gomer said, yes, dear, I'm coming home like it's gone with the wind or you know, some, some romantic kind of melodrama sort of thing. Or if she said, you fool you, you are setting me free. I'm going back to my lovers. We don't know the end of the story. It ends with the offer. And then God switches the parable and switches the message. See, the first message is God is a husband with an unfaithful wife. God is a husband with a whore for a wife. And yet, He is still committed to her. He's still longs for her. He still wants to share his love and his life with her. But the second, the second parable has to do with the children. Can you imagine how dysfunctional Hosea's family is? You know, one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it never cleans up any of the mess. One of the reasons I think it's true is how genuine it is. Here's a broken family. Here's a single father He's got three children. One of them, every day, is not his. The other two do not have sweet names like Heather and Skippy or something, you know? <laughs> Their names are horrible too. You know, they're like curses for names on these kids. You can imagine how screwed up this whole family is. And so God uses, in chapter 11, the part that 
I, I told you, uses dysfunctional family as the parable to call His people into His love. And He says this, He says, do you not understand your origins? You were spiritual orphans in Egypt. You were nothing but slaves. You had no land. You had no people. You had no place. But I found you. See, what he's saying here is I saw you in the orphanage. I saw you in the foster system. And I called you. And I didn't call you as slaves. I didn't make you my property. I made you my sons. I made you my children. And I I lifted you up in my arms. I'm the one who taught you to walk. I'm the one who with tender cords led you in kindness. I'm the one who broke your yoke, He said. And yet it it was not ever I that you knew loved you. And the more I called to you, the more... You ran away, and the louder I called, the farther you went from me. He says, my, my people are wayward children, rebellious, prodigals, far from me. And then, you see, as he expresses his righteous indignation with them, he says, I... I could bring up Assyria. Assyria is rising at the moment. It's rising into prominence in the world. They're becoming the dominant country of the world. I could bring Assyria and they could wipe you out in a second. You could go back right where you came from. And then all of a sudden, as you read chapter 11, we read it kind of quickly, but as you read chapter 11, something amazing happens. There's a sound in chapter 11 like no other sound in all of the Bible, but you have, to, you have to listen for it. God speaks and He says, how can I give you up? How can I let anybody else take you? You know, what you're hearing if you listen is you hear the sound of God crying. It's the tears of God. Because see, you cannot say about your child, how can I give you up in anger? You can only say, how can I give you up in brokenness? How can I let anyone else take you when you're talking about your own son or your own daughter? How can I let this happen to you? You can't say that and not weep over the one you love. And the scripture goes on and it says, the heart of God recoiled. The heart of God was changed. And, and the English is, is, is strong there, but it's still not completely full of description of what's going on there. The word that is used there in Hebrew is a very specific word. It's a word for a siege of a city. It's when the walls of a city have been breached and the defenses of the city have been completely destroyed and now the city is, is, is ruined. The city is destroyed because of the advance of the armies against the city. And what God is saying is you my children have overthrown my heart. You have besieged and broken the walls of my heart and how can I go on without you? Torn to pieces. How can I give you up? And then God says something so beautiful. He says, I will not give you up. And then He does this thing. He says, I will roar. 
I will roar. And because the text in the English says, and you will come back, and you will come back trembling, it makes it sound like when he roars, we're going to become afraid. You see, but he could have just sent Assyria to make him afraid. So the, the roar of God is not about making us afraid or making his wayward children afraid. It's about melting the heart. What is it that makes a wife a whore but hardness of heart towards the husband and towards the commitment and towards the marriage and towards the home? What is it that makes a child rebellious against parents and, and not willing to live with love and the love of the parents except hardness of heart? So when God says, I will roar, then He says, and my children will will experience a melting of their hearts and they will return. So it's not, it is not God's power that's being expressed here. It's God's love that melts their hearts. So, are you tracking with me so far? Three of you. Okay. I'll... rest of you must be dead today. Because this is powerful. So let me give you three aspects of the love of God from these stories. The first is, and I, I steal this word from Tim Keller because I can't think of a totally better word. He says, what you see in this is the sophistication of God's love. And I, you could call it complexity. You could call it the wisdom, the maturity, the adult nature of God's love. And, and the reason I say this is, as a parent and, and, and having been a child of my own parents, one thing you start to realize is a child cannot really comprehend the parent's love. Let me give you some examples. For, uh, if you, you, you tell a child, I will not buy you the video game, either because they have too many already or because you don't have the money, whatever reason, but your refrigerator has broken down and you have to buy a refrigerator for the home, the child will look at that and say, I never get anything. You get whatever you want. You must not love me. You gave yourself a refrigerator. Now everything in you wants to go, you stupid brat, how do you think we're going to eat? But the kid doesn't care. All the kid cares about is I don't have my video game or insert whatever. You know, shoes that cost $200 or whatever it might be. Okay, Because a child cannot understand the sophistication of a parent's love. Think about this. If you have siblings, if you ever had siblings, those siblings, if they were older than you, began to get privileges before you. They got to stay up later or watch more mature shows or do things that you don't get to do. And what does the younger sibling say? It's not fair! Always thinking that if you love me, you let me do what they do. Not knowing that you're doing it for their good, for their development. You're a parent, not their buddy. But the child says, you don't love me. You give them this, you don't give it to me. Why is that that children do that? Well, one way to look at it is a child has no horizon. They only have now. Now think about this with me, those of you particularly who are older like me. Do you remember when summer lasted forever? 
I mean, when you're a kid, summer is just last forever. When you get old, it's always winter and never Christmas. I mean, it's just, a, it, it, it's just the way the brain is. It's a developmental thing. A child has no idea what really has value unless you teach them. A child does not have self-knowledge unless you give it to them. That's why we correct. That's why we have to teach. It's why we nurture. Is because a child has no self-knowledge. They don't understand nuances. They think the refrigerator and the video game are the same. Right? A child has no idea about value. I remember when my kids were little, we were, we were missionaries, and, but on, on Saturday I would say, we can go get one treat. We can go get one treat. And when they were little, they loved matchbox cars. Matchbox cars cost 88 cents and gave them incredible pleasure. The day came, it didn't work anymore. And they didn't want a little car, they wanted the whole big car, you know? And even then it wasn't enough. You understand, there's, there's in a child, there is the need to develop. There's the need for teaching. There's the need to train. But above all else, there is a huge gap between a child's understanding of love and a parent's love. Paul said it this way, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Unless, friends, you develop in your maturity, unless you develop in your understanding, you will never have capacity for the love the Father has for you. And the problem for many of us is we are still spiritually incredibly childish. Think about this statement that people make all the time. Lord, how could you let this happen to me? Lord, every time I seem like I get a step forward, I get knocked two steps back. Lord, they have more gifts than me. They have more opportunity than me. Lord, they Do you realize how childish all that sounds? That's spiritual childishness that's coming out of the mouth of physical adults. You cannot experience the fullness of the fire of His love unless you're also willing to put away your childishness. In Hosea, the whole passage and the whole you know, push of Hosea is for the people to repent. To repent from being whores. To repent from being hardened, rebellious, bitter children. But the way that he's calling them to repent isn't to go and become religious or you know, to try to clean up their act. He's trying to say to them, you've got to grow up. You've got to quit your spiritual immaturity. You've got to quit your spiritual living in the moment, not realizing God knows the end from the beginning. You've got to begin to realize everything you have is everything you need, and everything you don't have is also what you need because of the wisdom of God in your life. He will give you everything you require, but He will also keep from you everything that is required. But if you are unwilling to grow up, you will be a bitter, brooding child. And uh, all the book of Hebrews is written, it says, some of you can't even bear milk when I want to give you meat. The second aspect of his love that Hosea speaks to us is 
is about the incredible involvement of the love of God with us. Here is, here is what God teaches us about love that is so powerful. He says, you cannot love unless you will be vulnerable. If you are unwilling to be vulnerable, you cannot experience or give real love. It's so powerful when you realize God didn't say to Hosea, go be friends with Gomer. God said, go marry Gomer. Why is that? Well, have you ever had a friend who's a disaster? Or are you the disaster and your friends have you? I mean, if you have a friend who's a disaster, you know, you go over and you listen and you go one night and you listen to them and you're like, okay, I'm a really good friend. I'm going to go tomorrow night too. And you go another night. By the third night, though, with your friend, you're like, oh, they're calling. I'll just let this go to voicemail. You see, but if you're married and you go, oh, they're calling, I'll just let this go to voicemail. You're a dead person. Because you have bound your life to their troubles. And their troubles are bound to your life. You see, God couldn't demonstrate His love for us by Hosea being a friend of Gomer. He could only demonstrate His love for us by Hosea marrying Gomer. He had to marry her. And then what God says about this connection is in the whoring in the unfaithfulness, in the degradation, God said, I'm coming apart. I'm coming apart over you. You see, every pain you have is now His pain. Every joy you have is now His joy. Please, please listen to this. Until you are presented before the throne of God and you are holy and you're happy and you're whole until that moment. Jesus, the Trinity, will not know unbounded joy. They will have mixed joy because they have bound their joy to your joy. In the book of Jude, in the last part of it, it makes it clear that this is true. Jude is uh, giving a, it's a benediction. And I used to use it all the time as a Presbyterian pastor and and I used my Presbyterian voice to say the benediction, you know, which was very nice. And uh, <laughs> just see if you're awake. Uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. See, the problem is some people read that and they think it's our joy. That's not the grammar there. The grammar is he will never have unbounded joy till he presents you. And when he presents you, he will present you blameless. And when he presents you, he will present you having kept you from stumbling and falling and having brought you before the very throne of the majesty of the glory of God. Then will Jesus have joy. But not only that, in Zephaniah it says, on that day, he will sing a song over you. And the truth is, if, if you understand the Bible, if you understand the revelation of God's heart in the Scriptures, here's what that song is. It's the song you've been looking for your whole life. 
Every musician has always tried to find that song in the notes, in the scales, in the chords, and all that. Every singer has tried to sing that song. Every now and then we've had a glimpse of that song when our hearts were stirred or resonated or something. But, but the day you hear His song, you'll say, that's the song. That's the one I was always looking for. That's the one I've always been searching for. That's the one, and it's the one I've been looking for. That's His involvement with you and me. That's His vulnerability with us. You cannot have love without vulnerability. There are a lot of people that I've met over the course of the years who have come to me and said, and said to me, I, I like this church, but I'll never give myself to a church again because I was hurt in other churches. You see, that's not vulnerability. That's hardness. I've had people come to me and say, I was, I was hurt so bad in relationships. My, I had a spouse that cheated on me or friends that betrayed me or whatever it is. They say, I will never let that happen again. That's, see, that's not vulnerability. That's hardness. And hardness is a path to damnation. Hardness means you will never experience the love you demand because you cannot love without vulnerability. And what God shows in this in this this vulnerability of his love, he shows his passion, his commitment. He shows this unbelievable pursuit of you. We sang a song earlier. Um, I love this song. It's called Reckless Love. Oh, the reckless love of God. Now, I'm a theologian, so I'm going to tell you right off, it's completely theologically inaccurate. Okay, and all-knowing God is not reckless. It's just, I mean, they, they just don't go together, okay? It's impossible. But I'll tell you why I love that, that, that song. It's because I don't know how to describe his vulnerability other than to call it reckless love. I, I, I don't know how else you, you explain it or you understand it except to say, why would he invest in whores? Why does he give his time to those who would reject him and who seek fire elsewhere? Why does he give Why does he come to the door and give us food so we don't starve? Why does he give us clothes when we curse him with the very breath? Why does he give us amazing jobs and prosperity when we use his name as nothing more than a curse word? And yet, even when we are cursing Him, He is blessing us. Even when we are sleeping with other gods, He is providing for us. Your very physical ability to commit adultery is given to you by Him. <laughs> and yet, you use it for other gods who are not fires that will ever satisfy you. You see, if you don't give your love to God, you will always overlove things that have no worth and have no value. So how do I respond to this love? Well, first off is to realize no religion can give you an approach through rules and regulations. This may sound harsh, but let's get an understanding. Religion is basically dressing up better as a whore. You're still a whore, you're just a better class of whore. Maybe cost a little more. 
But that's all. You're still a whore because it's unchanged. Your status is unchanged. Your identity, your behavior, all of these things are unchanged. You just look, you just look a little better. You see, you can be religious and proud. But you can't be saved and proud. Because it takes a humbling to actually say, you mean God is calling me a whore and you accept it. God is calling me rebellious. He's calling me a child who's a prodigal, who's wayward, and you accept it. Because, see, the gospel will never make sense to you till you hear that declaration. You're a whore. You're a rebellious child. Because until you hear that and humble yourself and say, what do I do? You'll never make sense to you this, this truth of the gospel. You are so sinful that Christ had to die for you, but you are so loved that he chose to die for you. See, the problem with a lot of people is they think Christianity is about becoming a better person. If that were true, it just means we'd become better whores. (laughs) What Hosea is speaking on behalf of God is God is saying, I'm fully committed to you. Even when you hated me, I was healing you. Even when you wanted nothing to do with me, I was feeding you. And so all he's asking is, do you not understand the love that I'm giving to you? Will you not become vulnerable to me and not hardened? That instead of your hurts and your wounds making you hard, let your hurts and your wounds make you wise. Because God's roar is to make your heart melt. Well, are you tracking with me still? Got two more minutes, okay? The costliness of the love of God is so evident in the, the price that Hosea paid for Gomer. He gave everything he had financially in order to buy her back. See, you can live your life with very cheap love. Like, if you have friends who are total disasters, you just support them, you just be there, you listen to them as they as they blame everybody else in the world and they stay in their childishness and you can, you can stay with them in that and support them, but that is nothing more than sentimentality. It's a mere affection. It's not true love. It costs you almost nothing. Or the other thing is, and many of us have done this, we say, well, I just can't abide by the, the fake of this person or the badness of this person and you want to be truthful and you say, I cut you out of my life. Again, it costs you almost nothing. Here's what God said. I'm going to melt your heart. It cost him it cost him loving people who had no capacity to love him back. And so what it cost him was to restore you to a capacity where you actually could feel and encounter love and then receive it and then give it back. Yeah. That song that Charity was singing, the song that's on the album, that's it part, it says, I will praise your name, I will sing of when your love came down. Do you understand in every generation a song like that has been written? When I was a kid, we sang it like this, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. In every generation, there are people who have realized that this is what matters. 
I don't have capacity for this kind of love. I don't have the sophistication for this kind of love. But I demand it. I need it. I was made for it. And the only way I can really experience it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Hosea was pointing us to Jesus. 30 shekels. He bought her. You know what it reminds me of is the garden in Gethsemane. And Jesus is saying, is there any other price I can pay? Is there any other price than separation from you, Father? Is there any other price than you turning your face from me so that you don't have to turn your face from them? Is there any other price I can pay? And Jesus didn't pay for you with 30 shekels. He paid with his own life and his own blood. And it wasn't the pain on the cross that he was, that he was reticent of. He could handle the pain. It was the separation from God because he who knew no sin became sin. Another way of putting it is he who is actually righteous became sinful legally so that you who are actually sinful would become legally righteous. But then he bought you. And he has a right to you, but he doesn't want you as slaves. As a matter of fact, he said to his his disciples, I will not call you slaves, but friends. And greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friend. Man. All I'm saying today is grow up and love like Hosea was taught to love Gomer and love like God has loved you. Face the fact that apart from the love of God, you're just a wayward child. You're just rebellious, hardened of heart. And if you don't respond to the love of God, you're going to overlove something that will destroy you like Gomer did. He's calling you, friends. He's calling you to the fire of his love. Will you stand with me? The only struggle that Jesus ever had in terms of obedience, the only struggle was not that he wanted to do something sinful, but that his father had asked him to go and pay the price. Go buy us back. And in the garden, he, he knew what it was going to cost him. He knew that he would experience the curse. He would drink the cup of the curse. He would feel the sting of the punishment of our sins. That God was roaring on the cross. And He was roaring for one purpose only, and that was to call you home. To bring you to the love you were made in and you were made for. I don't know where you're at. Maybe, maybe you're a believer and you're catching this like I've been catching it today. I am so touched by His love for me. And let me tell you, friends, He's right. I'm a whore. I'm a spiritual child. I'm a wayward child. And apart from His Holy Spirit and His love, I have no place in this world. I love that passage. When, and I just put my name instead. It says, when Israel was young, I just say, when I was young. Out of bondage, God called me. It was, it was God who taught me to walk. It was God who held me in, my arm, in His arms. 
And there were many times I did not know it was Him. Even though He was feeding me, even though He was leading me with tender cords and kindness, even though He was breaking the yoke over my life, I was screaming, why are you doing this? Why is it happening this way? And I would go after other things to satisfy me or relieve the pain. But I love this passage because it says, how can I let you go? How can I let someone else take you from me? To know that God's heart has a spear in it for His wayward children. To know that His walls are devastated. That His joy will never be unmixed until you're whole. He is the mighty one. He is the splendid one. He could do anything with the power of His words or His hands. And yet, He weeps over you. Will you just stay childish? Or will you grow up into His love now? Will you say, Lord, how can I let you go when you bought me and you paid for me? Paul said it this way, I've been bought with a price, he said. But not to be a slave, to be a friend. You know what Jesus did? He did the same thing Hosea did. He took off His robe of righteousness and He put it on you. And He covered your nakedness. And then He said, I share my life with you. Will you share your life with me? I meant to tell you this. I'll, I'll just tell you as we're standing before the Lord this one thing. Do you know why the story ends where it ends? Because if, we, if, if Gomer became the wife she always should have been, we would have, said, we would have made a formula out of it. Evangelicals would have the Gomer Project. And if it ended that she said, you fool, you gave me my freedom, I'm going after my lovers, then we'd say, see, love doesn't work. You, know, you want to know why we don't know the end of the story? Because it's none of your business. Just like it's nobody else's business what your story is. The only thing that matters in this story is the same thing that happened to Gomer is happening to you. And the question is, will you go home with Jesus? Will you give Him as He's given Himself to you? Will, you? will you refrain from all others and give yourself only to Him? Or will you keep playing the whore with other gods? It's funny because even the brain that doubts Him is a brain He gave to you. Even the breath that curses Him is a breath He gives to you in His mercy. At least respect Him enough to investigate His love today. But if you're like me and you've loved Him a long time, but you see His love like I do in a fresh way today, I think there's a fire right here in our church. I think it's the fire of His love. I think the furnace is here right now. I, I don't know what you're feeling, but I have felt so tender towards Him. Such tears have come and vulnerability because I have places of hardness and I have taken the easy way out of love sometimes but today I don't want to I want my heart melted I want my heart melted like never before so I invite you would you come and join me up here if you sense the Lord is saying I want to melt your heart or your heart is being melted would you just come like you're coming to the altar and some of you you might need to kneel you might need to you know you might need to Get it on your face before God, whatever it is. Look, I know you have plans, but just for a minute, 
will think about the price that it costs to love you. And take some time out just to... And, and the truth is, moving towards God is, is a prophetic act. It means a lot. Moving your body towards God is a very powerful thing. So I just invite you, the fire of the Lord, I feel like this platform is an altar today. And I just invite you to come and just say, Lord, I melt my heart before you have melted my heart with your love. And just begin to say to him, when I, you know, you've called me to be your son, to be your daughter. You've, you've lifted me up in your arms. You're leading me with tenor cords and I will not break away. When you call, I will answer. Do not allow this day to go by without hearing his voice of love saying, I am calling to you as my son. I'm calling to you as my daughter. And he's going out. He's so vulnerable that he's asking you to be equally vulnerable. He so loves you and his love is so complete for you that he's longing that you would open up so he can make you into the lover you always wanted to be. To restore your capacity for love. Do not fail to respond to Him today. I'm just going to give a minute, just a minute more, and then I'm going to close this up. But I just have sensed this love from last night till today, saying, my people, don't you hear my heart? children, don't you hear my heart? The heart of a father who's broken for you, who has a spear in his heart, whose joy is linked to your joy, who's, who has linked his heart to your pain. You're not just friends. I'm bound to you, he says. When you call, I answer. His word says he will never leave you, will never forsake you. The book of Hosea says even if you leave him, he doesn't leave you. I love, for some reason, this designation has always touched me. I am his precious, purchased possession. And yet, he doesn't treat me like a possession. He treats me as a friend, as a son, as an heir. But have you, before we go, would you just settle in your mind this one thing? My life is bound to your life, Lord. I share my life with you and with none other like you. You share your life with me and none other like me. And you recognize that your joy is His joy. <laughs> Jesus will not know fullness of joy till you know fullness of joy. Every pain you feel, He feels. Every hurt you endure, He endures. Our God has made Himself so vulnerable that He will not know unmixed joy until you stand in glory, blameless, without fault. What an amazing thing. Lord, we seal what You're doing now. We seal ourselves in this love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I ask you to share some of this love with each other, okay? God bless you. I'm glad you were here today. Thank you.